I'm sure you all think this is going to be a Vankenzosin bashing session, but it is not. I promise. I thought I actually came up with a pretty good title, and Dr. Matu says, you really need to come up with some better titles. I said, oh, what? I, thought I worked so hard on this one. And he said, it really should be something more like Vankenzosin, you suck if you prescribe it, or something like that. And I said, well, I don't know if I can pull that off quite yet in my career, but maybe sometime. So today, I'd like to talk to you about 10 antimicrobial pearls that I really think will change your practice. Some of them you are probably familiar with already, but when it comes time to actually ordering the drug, I still see you do it the wrong way. <laughs> so we're going to go through those. Um, and then some of them may actually be new to you, so I hope that you'll actually learn something new. And so let's start with a case. 44-year-old male, 126 kilograms, so our normal patient in Baltimore. These are the vitals. You can see that they're all abnormal. So we are presuming that this patient has sepsis from a possible bacteremia. That's kind of our working diagnosis. Serum creatinine is 1.2. So what's the vancomycin dose? If you say one gram, I will hurt you. <laughs> I'm hearing what, 15, 20 mg per kilo? OK, good. So Yemi, stop ordering one gram of vancomycin. There are actually two major documents that you should be aware of that actually describe how we should be dosing our vancomycin. One was published, it was a joint publication from the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, IDSA, and they, I'll, give you, I'll just tell you what they said in a second, and secondly, um, clinical, clinical infectious diseases and IDSA published a, an MRSA guideline, uh, 2011. So we have two major documents from major societies telling us how we should be dosing our vancomycin. And what they say is the following. They don't say a gram anywhere. They say 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram actual body weight, which makes it easy for us. We don't have to employ any weird calculations to come up with what the dosing weight should be. Actual body weight every 8 to 12 hours recommended in patients with normal renal function. So if you have a patient like this that comes in, and we're going to do the calculation in a second, then don't be afraid to prescribe higher doses of VANC, especially for the first dose. And they also go on to say in the second document that if you have a seriously ill patient like this one, you might even shoot for higher doses at the beginning, 25 to 30 milligrams per kilogram. That's a lot of vancomycin. They also do have a little caveat in there that they say you should probably max out at two grams. So my personal practice is that two grams is kind of the max that I'll recommend in any given situation. I have seen other people go to 2.5, 3, but I think that we can probably stop at two and then just dose it more frequently if we need to. So, 126 kilo patient, MRSA cellulitis, different patient from before. This is what we should be thinking about. So 20 mg per kilo, we're in that 15 to 20 range, 2,520 milligrams. So two pearls here. One is we're going to drop it down to two. And the second is make it easy for your pharmacists and your nurses, round it to the nearest 250 milligram increment, because most of the time they come in pre-mixed bags that have those doses in it. Second patient, 72 kilogram patient, septic shock. So now we're aiming more for the 25 to 30 milligrams per kilo dosing scheme. 1,800 milligrams, so be nice and order 17 or 1.75 grams. All right, so are we all clear now? No one gram doses of vancomycin. We're good. So here's pearl number one. And I, I tried to help you out with all, each of these pearls. They're nice and short, and they're actually 140 characters or less, so they're all tweetable you are so inclined. <laughs> Vancomycin one gram is almost never the right dose for adults, but are, can you think of any times where one gram might actually be the right dose? So we're talking about adults only. I don't do kids. 
So renal dosing. The only, the only patient population renal-wise that I would say one gram is probably appropriate is our dialysis patients. Because we've seen time and time again that no matter how much they weigh, if they usually end up on cycles where they get a gram on the day of their dialysis. So they usually get a gram three times a week, and that usually is sufficient for getting their therapeutic levels. So no problem, one gram for your dialysis patients. Anybody else? Yeah, so if you're 50 kilos or less, you can get a gram, and that's okay. Good. So Ali brought up a very good question, and that is, well, what's the data to say that? Well, first of all, how are we doing? And there were two articles that came out in the Journal of Emergency Medicine earlier this year. I think it was in May. Both were in the same issue. And they actually tackled this very question. How are we doing on dosing vancomycin in the ED? And this study was a retrospective study. They looked at six months' worth of vancomycin data, and they randomly selected about 250 doses. And what they found is only about 20% of patients received the correct dose. And the average dose that patients got was 14.6 milligrams per kilo. And you're probably thinking, actually, that's not too bad. That's right, almost, that's almost 15, right? But if you look closer at the subsets of the weight breakdowns, the only group that got the right dose was the ones that, where one gram was the right dose. <laughs> so anybody outside of one gram got a wrong dose, basically. So this just reinforces to us that we really need to be thinking more about, they must have, this, this group must have had a large percentage of patients that were normal size. We don't have that here. So one gram, rarely the right dose. Second study, same issue. This one actually looked at the same outcome, but they also looked at how it related to outcomes hospital-wide. So they found that only 22% of their patients received the right dose. So very similar, very different patient populations, different hospitals. This one looked at over 4,000 doses of vancomycin, and only about 20%, again, were in the right range. Interestingly, they found that patients that were overdosed had worse outcomes. And you might be thinking, well, who, that's, that's doesn't really, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense in, on the surface because I'm thinking, well, we're probably gonna give those patients higher doses anyway, especially the sick ones. So, but if you think about it, and they didn't look at these particular uh, confounders, but the patients that more likely got the higher doses were probably the sicker patients that were more likely to die already and have a higher mortality. Secondly, if you look at treatment guidelines for MSSA, so methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, if you give those patients vancomycin, they actually do worse than if you were just to give them a beta-lactam. And so we treat MRSA a lot. Not all of our patients grow out MRSA. In fact, a very small quantity of them actually do. So we may be, but it's really hard in the ED to differentiate who really is gonna have MSSA, MRSA, so we tend to give vanc First, so I don't think that we should necessarily change our practice based on this retrospective study, but just know that it's interesting that some of the patients with the higher doses did get worse outcomes, but they also showed, obviously, that a lot were underdosed. So how can we do better? A third study came out just last month, I think, or a couple months ago in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Use weight-based dosing sentences. That way it automatically will calculate it based on your weight. So these are things to think about when you're going into new systems to say, how can I not order one gram all the time. How We should be using CPOE to our advantage. These, they have clinical decision support. That's what they're there for. We really should be maximizing our utilization of what they offer us. So think about that when you go elsewhere. And they found that when they employed that strategy, they actually had a significant reduction in their one gram doses of vancomycin ordered, not surprisingly. Okay, moving on just a little bit. So dosing of antibiotics in our critically ill obese patients. I know Dr. Winters talked about this last week a little bit, um, but I think it's also germane to our conversation here. 
we see a lot of obese patients, and they tend to be pretty sick sometimes. And so the question becomes, how do we dose them with our antibiotics? If we're going to give them Zosin, or we give them Cefepime, or whatever, how do we dose them? And the, all the available pharmacokinetic literature out there suggests that we should be giving them the highest end of the dosing scale. So when you look in Micromedics or LexiComp, and it tells you what the dose should be, and it gives you that range of one to two grams, or one to three grams, or whatever it is, pick the highest one. And that's how we should be dosing our critically ill, obese patients. And it's very easy, because that's the same for penicillin, cephalosporins, carbapenems, and fluoroquinolones. It's a little bit different if you have to reach outside the box a little bit and order an aminoglycoside. And so I will make this um, lecture available to you by PDF after, after the lecture's over. But they actually have an adjusted body weight calculation to do if you're really going to dose your aminoglycosides. But just call your pharmacist. They'll help you. And Venk, you know what to do by now, right? <laughs> Actual body weight, 15 to 20 mg per kg at least. So the pearl here is, is when dosing most of your antibiotics in the critically ill obese patient, pick the highest dose. Okay, now this is the part of the lecture where I know some of you know this already, but I want you to really know it because I still see us questioning this stuff all the time regarding cross-reactivity between these different classes of agents. So we're gonna clear up any confusion there is today and you're going to walk out of here knowing exactly what you need to do next time this conundrum arises. The problem is we are up against a lot. Dr. Abraham sent me this a couple months ago. So his wife got a prescription. I'm, I'm okay to say this HIPAA-wise, I, I assure you. His wife got a prescription for Cephaclor. This is in the package insert. If this product is given to penicillin-sensitive patients, caution should be exercised because cross-reactivity among beta-lactam antibiotics has been clearly documented and may occur in up to 10% of patients with a history of penicillin allergy. So it's in our package inserts. We're still teaching it in medical school and pharmacy school. Our CPOE pop-ups everywhere will come up. Whenever you want to order cefepime in a penicillin allergic patient, it's going to pop up for you. Our nurses will question. So we have a lot working against us in terms of getting this right, but I want you to try really hard. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the pearls that you need to know going forward. Here's the, here it is. Uh, Dr. Bond and, and I and a couple of our former residents worked on a review article that got published in Journal of Emergency Medicine a couple years ago that tackled the cephalosporin issue. And where a lot of the original cross-reactivity data came from was in the 60s and 70s, and they didn't have very well-controlled studies. And in addition, the medium that they used to make the penicillins was, and the cephalosporins were actually in the same manufacturing plant, so there was a lot of chance of just cross-contamination amongst the samples itself. So you might have been getting uh, cephalexin, but it actually had some penicillin in it. <laughs> so if you were allergic to penicillin, you're going to react to the penicillin that was in there, not necessarily the cephalosporin. So as we've moved forward in time and gotten a lot more data on this, we've realized that that 10% number that we used to think was right is wrong. So here are the real numbers. If you have a penicillin allergic patient and you're considering a, a cephalosporin that's in the third, fourth, or fifth generation, don't think twice about it. If they end up having an allergic reaction, it's more likely that they have a separate reaction to that drug than it is that they actually have a, a cross-reactivity reaction. So third, fourth, and fifth, use generously. We also used to think that the cross-reactivity was due to the beta-lactam ring. They look similar. We realized that that wasn't even the problem either, and I'll tell you what that's about in a second. So if you have a first and second generation cephalosporin that has a side chain, and I know this sounds complicated in chemistry, I'm not showing you any structures, but I'll give you a table in one second to make this real easy. You should avoid 
a cephalosporin that has a similar side chain. That makes sense. So the side chain is really the problem with cross-reactivity these days. However, if you have a first or second generation cephalosporin that does not have a similar side chain, think of that more like your third, fourth, and fifth generation cephalosporins. So you can use them liberally. So which ones are we talking about? Who cares about a side chain, right? Really the ones that you should think about. If someone has a specific allergy to amoxicillin or ampicillin, and you do see these occasionally, then you should avoid these cephalosporins because they share a similar side chain. And I list this purposely because cephalexin is one that we use commonly. So if you have someone that comes in and they have amoxicillin as their allergy, don't pick cephalexin as your cephalosporin of choice. Does that make sense? Any questions on any of this so far? Okay. So what about the reverse, though? I get asked this question a lot, and I've, I've looked into this. So what if you have a cephalosporin allergic patient can I give a penicillin? And I'll be quite honest with you and say there's not really a lot of data on this out there, and the couple of studies that are out there are not very promising. So what I would say is that if you have someone that's allergic to cephalexin, avoid the penicillins, because there seems to be about anywhere between 5 and 25% chance of reaction. I don't know all the immunology behind it. It's not very clear, but at this point, it doesn't seem like it's safe to give someone, and I don't know, like I said, I don't know why, but it doesn't seem like it's safe to give someone a penicillin if they're allergic to a cephalosporin. And the last one I want to touch on today is what about the carbapenem? So sometimes we have that penicillin or allergic patient and they need to get miropenem or ertapenem or whatever, one of the penems. What are the odds of them having a reaction to this particular case? And the answer is basically the same as your cephalosporins. So you should be thinking about using carbapenems in your penicillin allergic patients. Because if you can't use zosin and you need gram-negative and anaerobic coverage, then you should be thinking about miropenem. That's a great, a great alternative, or ertapenem potentially. So the cross-reactivity is very, very low, if at all. Like I said before with the cephalosporins, if they have a reaction, it's probably more likely that they're independently allergic to this drug in addition to the penicillin. We know that penicillin-allergic patients are more likely to be allergic to other things just in general. And the other cool thing about this is that only 10% of patients that tell you they have a penicillin allergy actually probably have a skin test positive penicillin allergy, meaning that you're built in tenfold safety factor, which is great. I like safety factors. Okay, so we've made it through half of our pearls. Any questions at all on cross-reactivity? Yes? It's a great question. What do you all, what do you all think? So the question was, let's say, most of the patients that, you know, you ask them, well, what was your allergy to penicillin? Oh, my mom told me I had a reaction when I was two. Or I have hives. Everyone says hives for everything, right? But his question was, what if they had true anaphylaxis to penicillin? Does that make you more worried about these? I open that up to you. What do you think? Let me ask it this way. By a show of hands, would anyone be unwilling to give a cephalosporin to a patient that had an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin? <laughs> Fair enough. Based on the review article that we wrote, that even if they have an IgE-mediated anaphylactic reaction, it's still safe to give these. Now, I realize that you might be hesitant in those situations, and that's fine. If you have an alternative, that's okay. But just know that the data says that you probably are okay to do that. Okay. So I saw this um, sign coming home from, I was on the train actually, this was at a train station, and 
I, it caught me as odd because I had no idea what a kiss and ride was. And so I asked, I was like, Melissa, my wife, I'm like, what, what the heck, this is? And she was like, oh, yeah, 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 that's, a, that's actually a thing. So I didn't realize this was a thing. So it was funny to me, but I realized later that it wasn't all that funny. But basically what this means is that, <laughs> basically, if you don't know, what this means is that you're allowed to sit and wait for people. So it's kind of like that parking lot at the airport where you can kind of like wait for an hour while your friend's flight is coming in. So that's apparently what a kiss and ride is. So, I imagine most of the time you're not actually kissing. That's why it kind of caught me off guard, but anyway. Very strange. <laughs> so case number two. We see this all the time. 56-year-old female, 65 kilos, end-stage renal disease on dialysis, hypertension. Here are her vital signs. All normal. Chest x-ray reveals a right middle lobe pneumonia. What are her risk factors for hospital or healthcare-associated pneumonia? Dialysis. So we whip out our vancomycin and our cefepime and our levofloxacin, right? Based on the 2005 guidelines, you probably have to, right? And it's unfortunate because this is a completely well patient that should probably, could possibly go home, but they have this one risk factor for healthcare-associated pneumonia that's now making you think about these very broad spectrum, possibly double covering for gram-negative agents. So, the good news is we have some clearer data now to say what we should do in these types of patients. This is just for your information. From the 2005 guidelines, and they are being updated, so that's a good thing. These are the definitions of what actually qualifies for healthcare-associated pneumonia. Now, keep in mind that these guidelines combined ventilator-associated pneumonia and healthcare-associated pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia all in the same guideline. And those are actually different in terms of their risk factors. And HCAP, the, the one that we see most commonly, was sort of like down at the bottom where it was like, oh, we're kind of inferring these risk factors based on what these other ones are. So we don't even know necessarily what the real risk factors are for healthcare-associated pneumonia. Obviously, these make sense, um, but there could be more. These might not actually be completely accurate. But anyway, hopefully the new set of guidelines will give us some more clarity on that. So if you have a sick HCAP patient, I think the strategy is clear. Do what the guidelines say. Get your broad spectrum, gram-negative agent, possible, possibly thinking about double coverage for pseudomonas. Get your big gun, vancomycin or linazolid or whatever you want to use for your gram-positive agent. I think that those, it's clear in those. You know, the patient that just got out of the hospital last week after being in the ICU for a month, and they come in and they have a new pneumonia. Very clear on what we should do there. The question is, well, let me, before I get to that, sorry. So what comes up a lot, and I see this, believe it or not, is we order, we think about double coverage, and then we think, okay, good, I got my two agents, but then I see stuff like Zosin is ordered with cefepime, or Zosin is ordered with miropenem. And I know you're thinking about it right, because you're thinking about double covering for that possible pseudomonas, and that's right, but we need to pick agents that act differently. And so what I've done here is created two columns. Basically, you get one choice from this column, and then you pick one from this column. That's as easy as it is. So anything related to the penicillins or beta-lactams at all, you only get one of them. <laughs> and then you pick ciprofloxacin, levo, aminoglycosides. Hopefully, we're not using colistin in our ED, but we used to occasionally for our USH patients. Um, so that's how you pick double coverage. So don't, if you, cefepime, don't pick zosin. So the pearl here is if you are double covering for a gram-negative agent, only one can be from the beta-lactam family. The other has to be of a different mechanism of action. So to me, this is a kind of a landmark study. 
I know we don't have as many of those as we used to, and I know 10 years from now this might be something that is wrong. <laughs> but for now, it looks right. And this study came out early in 2013. In fact, I sent this one to Dr. McChew when he had the request this morning for sort of important EM articles, because I think this one is very important to us. This came out earlier this year in Clinical Infectious Diseases, and this was a Japanese study. And what they did is they risk stratified their HCAP patients, and they said, we know how to treat our sick ones, but what about the, the walking well, the not-so-sick ones? Do we really need to be treating them with these massive broad-spectrum antibiotics? And I think this was an awesome question to ask. And they basically looked at, they, they made up their own criteria. So they said, if you're not sick, and not sick meant you're not going to the ICU and you're not intubated, so they had pretty clear criteria there, and you had less than two risk factors for multidrug-resistant bacteria, and I'm not going to go into those now, but basically you're not sick patients. They basically treated the, that subgroup with community-acquired pneumonia treatment. So they picked the equivalent of cefraxone and azithromycin or your respiratory fluoroquinolone. And what they found is actually extremely interesting, I think. <laughs> they found that only 50% of their patients ended up receiving the broad-spectrum stuff, which I think is a good thing. And, but yet, 93% of the regimens were appropriate for the identified pathogen. And so what that means is that these patients that are not so sick most likely could be successfully treated with our normal community-acquired pneumonia treatment stuff. And I think that's, that's key to us. What they also found, which is going to be my next pearl, which Dr. Schenkel brought up earlier, is that they found atypical pathogens in 10% of their patients. So what does that mean for us? When we get a healthcare-associated pneumonia patient, no matter what your choices are, whether you want to give your vancomycin or vancomycin, whatever, you also should be thinking about adding azithromycin or fluoroquinolone to these patients because most of these patients have been out in the community, so they're just as much at risk for the atypicals as your normal community-acquired pneumonia person. So make sure that we cover the atypical bugs because 10% of the time, that's what's going to be the cause. So that's a great extra pearl, so this is a bonus pearl. So if you have a patient that has community-acquired pneumonia, but doxy is a great alternative agent, and it's actually listed in the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines as an alternative option if you want to send someone home on that. Okay. So last pearl just to, on pneumonia, just to, to kind of complete the circle here, is for CAP patients. So sometimes... We get a lot of community-acquired pneumonia patients that are okay to go home, and that's kind of what we were just talking about. But occasionally, you get the person that needs to be admitted, and the question is, do I need to change my treatment management because they're going to get admitted? And the answer for floor patients is no. These are your agents that you should be thinking about, your ceftriaxone, azithromycin, or your levofloxacin or moxie. However, the pearl here is if your patient is sick enough to go to the IMC or the ICU to meet CMS and other core measure criteria, if you're choosing a fluoroquinolone, you have to add the beta-lactam to go along with it. So I know that's a little bit of a change in practice because normally we think of the quinolone by itself or, you know, the cetraxone plus azithro. But if they're sick enough and they're going to an ICU or an IMC and you're ordering a fluoroquinolone, you have to add a beta-lactam to it. So add on the ceftriaxone to it. Okay? Okay. The last part of the talk here, I, I really compiled from the questions that I get on a daily basis. So I basically thought through this talk and said, what are the 10 most common questions that I get from all of you, and how can I relay this information in a way that will be absorbable? So uncomplicated UTIs in females. Used to be pretty easy with the last set of guidelines. You know, you'd pick your Bactrim or your Cipro, and you're done. The problem is that 
if you look at our antibiogram, it's like 60% against E. coli for e both of those, 60 to 70%, so a lot of resistance to E. coli. So the newest iteration of the guidelines came out just about a year and a half ago, and they now recommend as uncomplicated UTI, so this is no fever, no flank pain, no other signs and symptoms of pyelonephritis, and they're able to take oral medications, nitrofurantoin should be your first-line therapy. These are also listed as first-line therapies. Um, I have an asterisk next to the Bactrim because that is only if your resistance is less than 20% at your institution. That's what the guidelines say. So make sure you know, here it's not. It might be other places in the city, I don't know. So if it's less than 20%, you can still use Bactrim, but if it's higher, don't use it. And then I don't know how much you know about phosphomycin. We actually stock this in our ambulatory zone Omnicell now. It's a one-time dose. It's effective against E. coli and VRE UTIs. So that's helpful for some patients. Um, it's, quite a, it's pretty expensive compared to the others. It's about $30 per dose. But for the uncomplicated patient, you're giving them one dose and you know they're getting the full therapy and then you can send them home confident that you've treated the infection. So I think it's worth thinking about if you have an uncomplicated UTI patient in females. These are the second line therapies. And I know a lot of times, we're gonna talk about this, we, a lot of times we, we ceftrioxone and then we think about cephalosporins to go along with that. And I'm totally okay with that. Just know that you need to treat longer if you're using a beta-lactam in an uncomplicated UTI than you would for your, your Bactrim or your fluoroquinolone. So let's mix it up a little bit. And now we have a little bit sicker, they have pyelonephritis. Or is it different? And the answer is yes, it is a little bit different. So we need to think about these patients in a little bit of a different way. The guidelines actually recommend fluoroquinolone still as their first line therapy, which again, it doesn't make a ton of sense because we know that our E. coli susceptibility is bad to fluoroquinolones. And they recommend Bactrim as their other first line therapy. And you're thinking again, well, Bactrim is pretty bad against E. coli too, so why are they recommending these first line? And the reason being is that beta-lactams have been shown to not be as effective. Even if your resistance is bad, they still are not as curative as these drugs um, for pyelonephritis, even in longer courses. What the guidelines also say is if your resistance to one of, particularly the fluoroquinolone, is greater than 10%, then you should consider an, at least a one-time dose of IV ceftriaxone or an aminoglycoside before you send them out with their prescription for Cipro. So that may be something that you didn't know before today. So if you, and ours is higher than 10%. So if you're thinking about sending someone out for pylo, give them a dose of IV ceftriaxone or an aminoglycoside before you send them out with their prescription for Cipro. Yes? Okay, last, last points I'm gonna make are about MRSA, community-acquired MRSA. So a while back we used to think that um, this community-acquired MRSA, it, although prevalent, was gonna be like the thing, everyone's gonna present with cellulitis, with community-acquired MRSA. But the guidelines actually say, like you really don't need to necessarily consider MRSA infections as much, depending on how the wound is. And so they say that if it's a diffuse cellulitis without a defined portal, then it's probably more, like, more likely strep. If it is associated with a carbuncle or furuncle or abscess, probably more likely MRSA. So taking that into mind, this is another, what I consider sort of landmark study in, this came out also in clinical infectious diseases in 2013, and this was done at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, so a little bit of a similar population to what we might see here in terms of who might come in with MRSA infections. And they basically looked at uncomplicated cellulitis patients, 
so the ones that are probably based on the guidelines more likely to be strep, and they compared efficacy of giving Bactrim plus Caflex, so you're covering your strep and your MRSA, versus just Caflex alone, and they found that Caflex alone to be just as good as giving both. So, what do we take away from that? When you're thinking about treatment options for outpatient cellulitis, you have to think about strep for the uncomplicated ones. I don't know if, I, based on this one study, we can necessarily not treat for MRSA yet. I don't think we're there yet, but I think you have to cover strep. Okay, last point, diabetic foot infections. This is the last one, and this is where my vancosin stuff really comes in. <laughs> we see diabetes and a foot infection, and we automatically throw vancosin on everyone. We don't have to do that, <laughs> necessarily. So, the, just last year, there were new guidelines from IDSA that came out for diabetic foot infections. And they basically say you need to look for the signs of infection as normal, so your inflammation, your purulence, your tenderness, your warmth, your erythema. But then they break it down into the categories of mild, moderate, and severe infections. So a lot of the ones that we see are actually in the mild or moderate categories. We, re we don't see too, too many, but some that are more accompanied by systemic signs or metabolic issues. So what, what they suggest to do is, um, <laughs> gas from the crowd, Vancosin for the severe infections is okay. <laughs> so I do agree with it for that. But if you are considering treating for a more mild or some of your moderate infections, you probably don't need to cover as much for anaerobes or pseudomonas as we think that we need to. Just because they have diabetes doesn't necessarily mean they have pseudomonal infections in the mild cases. Does that make sense? So you can treat them just like you would a normal skin and soft tissue infection. Treat for your gram-positive stuff, your staph, your strep, and you'll be okay. Last year, um, one of my residents looked at our vancosin use, sort of as a little bit of medication use evaluation. And she looked at all of the vancosin cases we had in December of 2012. And what she found, and surprisingly to me, was there were only 55 cases that, of patients that received vancosin. And similar to what those two earlier studies showed, we underdose vancomycin, not surprisingly. And again, because one gram is sort of our more common order, those patients got the right dose, but the other ones didn't. And 42% of patients received less than 14. And what we also looked at was, particularly in the diabetic skin and soft tissue infections, is are we using them in the right cases? And we found that up to 40% of the patients actually didn't need both bank and zosin, mostly levozosin. And what we further found is that we need to be a little bit better about checking previous susceptibility patterns before we throw these drugs on board because two patients grew out resistant bacteria to these drugs and they both had previous resistance to those drugs documented. So if we had just looked, we would have found that and probably prescribed something different. So two important points here. Always know your antibiogram, know how to access it from, um, from whatever, your intranet or wherever, wherever you go. Know how to get access to your antibiogram and make sure that you are checking previous susceptibility patterns. It helps us now, we have CRISP, we can look at other hospitals, so it really helps us in these cases. So, you might be thinking, what do I have against Zosin? I always like advocate for stuff other than Zosin, but I actually don't have anything against Zosin. Zosin's a great drug. But I wanna point you to a couple of the factors that I think about when I'm saying, why don't we think about something other than, than Zosin? One is, if you're really thinking about a pseudomonas infection, our rate for, with cefepime is 90% versus only 78% susceptibility for pseudomonas with zosin. So if you're really worried about pseudomonas, zosin's not your best choice at our hospital here. 
The second thing is, do you really need the anaerobic coverage? If they're not an intra-abdominal infection or a severe diabetic foot infection, they may not need anaerobic coverage. So pick something with just the gram-negative coverage that you want. Further, and this is getting a little bit of press lately, is there's been a couple of abstracts presented at meetings, some in critical care, some in medicine, that find that if you mix vancozosin together, you have more AKI than if you just give patients vanc alone. Now, there are a lot of issues with these studies. They're all in abstract form. They haven't really been peer-reviewed. I assume that if patients are getting vancozosin versus just vanc, then the ones getting vancozosin are probably sicker, which means they probably have more likely risk factors for developing AKI. So I don't really know if there's actually a link yet, but just know that there's data coming out now that suggests that there might be a link between using vancozosin together and causing AKI. So, key points. Know how to access your antibiogram. If you don't know how to do it, I will show you next time you work with me. Cross-reactivity is not a big issue, as, at least not as big as we used to think it was. Think about weight when dosing antibiotics, and then risk assess your outpatients for optimal therapy. So before I reveal my last slide here, so um, about half of my life ago, <laughs> when I was a high school senior, this was my picture. You can see I chose, instead of being a model, I chose to become a pharmacist, so that was a good thing, I think. But <laughs> we'll end on that note. So any further questions other than what we've already talked about? All right, lots of good questions. So thank you very much. Hopefully we uh, learned something today. Thank you.